guys are so well ordered this morning. Just like, oh. I always like it when I have to quiet you guys down. It's great. It's wonderful to to be part of God's family. And it's like not not extended family. It's really immediate family. There's no one who brings you closer to someone than Jesus Christ and his spirit within us. So we're going to start in Isaiah 61 today, starting in verse 1. And we're going to start with a little bit of logic. So I know it's a little tricky to uh, to maybe switch on, uh, but hopefully we'll all be there together. So if you saw a painting, it was a quality painting, it would show the skill of the painter. It would be silly to praise the painting without acknowledging the one who painted it. That, that someone had to, there had to be a concept, there had to be skills, there was, uh, yeah, there was, it's, the painting only exists because of the painter. And same thing with like a, a well-cooked meal or baked goods. Um, when someone lifts weights, you can be very impressed with the amount of weight that was on that bar. Like just by itself, it could be sitting on the ground and you go, whoa, that's a lot of weight. But to have someone lift that up, they get the praise, they get the glory, because now they've done something that you think is amazing. And it would be silly to praise the beauty of nature without acknowledging the creator who made it, the one who sustains it. All aspects of nature, they they speak of God's glory. Everything from the elements on the periodic table, that they don't change. These are at the most basic, fundamental level, and it remain, the properties of it, molecularly, they remain the same. And God, he is the same, both today, yesterday, today, and forever. Every living thing, from a single-celled bacterium to plants and people, in, in a universe that's very unhospitable to life, that God has created life and he sustains it. Right? Wherever we look in the universe, unhospitable. There's no, there's nothing, like the, the atmosphere is impossible, but God has created a place here that sustains life, even though it's been quite warm around these parts lately. The Lord has sustained us using air conditioning and fans and pools and praise him for that. But one thing consistent in the life of Jesus is he always glorified God. He always lived to please the Father. And he did that intentionally. Other people, we lose sight of God because of our circumstances, maybe our pains. We can have a self-serving motive for even doing a good thing, something that's right. And we tend to exalt the messenger even over the one who sent the message. Or we can praise the message rather than the one who who del- who sent it. Like, so God. We, and uh, it's almost like you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, for instance. And we can almost, with our admiration of people who gave laid down their lives for the sake of Christ, we can admire those people without realizing that God is worthy of that kind of sacrifice from me. He is worthy of that glory. He gets all the glory because he's the one who sustains those people. He's the one who who made their life end in glory to God. It's like Peter. I imagine when he died uh, as a martyr for Christ, there were people who admired his boldness and his courage to lay down his life for Jesus. But he didn't die for Peter. Peter died for the glory of God. It says in John 21, 19, Jesus, this he spoke, signifying by what death 
he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. By what death he would glorify God. And he didn't tell him that. I mean, if, if you were told how you would die or that you would be dying a death for Christ, um, that may preoccupy you. You may think about, like, how is that going to happen? When is it going to happen? Is this the day when, when I ha- I'm called on to lay down my life for Jesus? Jesus didn't tell him that so that he would obsess about his own death, but that he would live for God's glory every day. To realize that time was short. That Jesus, he, he said, follow me. That was the point. That's why he told him, hey, you're going to die, but follow me. That's what we're called to do. So let's, again, ask God to open our eyes, soften our hearts, and give us understanding. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you've given us uh, such truth in your scriptures, and it's like precious treasure just sitting right on top that we can gather up and receive into our lives. And some of these treasures we need to dig down and find and and i pray as we unearth these treasures as you reveal them to our hearts that we would walk in light of them that we would honor you as we should and glorify you in jesus name amen so isaiah 61 starting in verse 1 the spirit of the lord god is upon me because the lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. To people who were living in bondage, God gave these amazing promises. Who is it addressed to? The poor, the brokenhearted, to captives and prisoners. When you're perfectly well, there's no need for a cure. But if you're sick with a, a deadly disease, a cure is everything. And so he's talking to people who were poor, who were hurting, who were in bondage, and he had these promises for them. It's gracious of God to give blessings to people that the world hates and really looks upon with disdain. Like, oh, the weak or, you know. Um, but God, he, he sees those people and he extends grace to them and promises to save, to rescue outcasts, even criminals. Now, this passage may be familiar to you because we see Jesus speaking about it in Luke chapter 4. If you want to turn there, we can read his reading of it in the synagogue in Nazareth. As the author, he is the best expositor, and he says that he has fulfilled this passage. So Luke 4, starting in verse 16 to 22. Actually, 21. It reads, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He had been given words by God to speak. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one who is the anointed one of God, who fulfilled these passages. Isaiah, he perceived broken hearts, but he couldn't do anything to fix them. He proclaimed liberty, but he lacked the authority to set captives free. So he was giving promises of God that he couldn't fulfill himself. And yet Jesus came, and he's able to fulfill these things. He can do, he can do them because he, God can do everything. That was Job's conclusion. He says, now I know you can do everything, which is a great thing to, to remember. God does everything. Jesus was God. Jesus was man. He was anointed with the Spirit. And if he was anointed, well, then we certainly too need to be anointed to do God's work and to do this work to set captives free, to see people healed. Did you notice that Jesus stopped reading the Isaiah passage at a comma? If you were to flip back, you see that the the Isaiah passage continues on. It begins to speak about vengeance. But Jesus did not come the first time uh, for vengeance, but to set captives free. He will do, he will, I mean, vengeance is God's sovereign territory. That's to afflict harm for the sake of wrong done. Discipline is correcting people with, with reconciliation in mind, for their good in mind. But vengeance is destruction, and that's God's turf. Where he's like, you know, now it's time for judgment. He is able to do vengeance. So he says, give space for that. God can take care of it. He is a righteous judge. We're still awaiting this day at the end of the Great Tribulation when Jesus will return with his saints to judge Satan and all those who oppose his rule on the earth. And some will say, well, if vengeance is for a future time, how about those other things that are listed afterwards? Aren't those things, you know, the, the joy, the, the, uh, you know, your oil of gladness for ashes, and I'll get to it again. It says, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, in Bible interpretation, there's a few things to keep in mind. First, Prophecy is not always linear. It's not always along a timeline. There can be moving around. Secondly, it is, uh, it is always interpreted by other scripture. You don't take one scripture all by itself, isolate it from the text and say, this is what it must mean. You need to look at other scriptures as well. And I can show you many scriptures in the New Testament and in the Old that these verses are for today because Jesus has come. The Holy Spirit has been sent. When Jesus read these words in the synagogue, the Holy Spirit had not been sent yet. The Holy Spirit was sent after Jesus ascended. So he died, he rose from the dead, he went into heaven, then the Holy Spirit was sent. And the third thing is there can be multiple fulfillments of Scripture. It's true that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, but we can see people 
freed from bondage. It's like, if you say these following verses are not for today, then you mean to tell me that God has sent the comforter who is incapable of comforting. Well, he is the comforter. That is his, that is one of his names. Isn't joy a fruit of the spirit? He's going to give us joy when we come to Christ. Instead of mourning our sins and failures, we can praise God. We can glorify God because he has come. 1 John 2 verse 19, it says that we Christians, we have received our anointing from the Holy One who teaches us truth. So we too have been anointed. Jesus is the anointed one because he's the anointed one. He also can anoint and then we can be anointed. We can be filled with the Spirit too. Jesus came to break the power of the devil and we experience that through the power of Jesus Christ. Now notice how the passage concludes. It says he, the Messiah was anointed, he came, saved, delivered, he established God's people that he may be glorified. So he didn't release prisoners because they had paid their debt to society. He didn't wipe away the tears because people had cried long enough and he was sympathetic towards them, though God does know our pains and he does see our tears. He did not exchange beauty for ashes because he just felt sorry for people. Like, ah, you've had a hard go. Let me help out. No, that's not the purpose. It says he did it for his glory. Some foolishly accuse God of being self-centered because he does things for his glory. They say, well, you know, he's just saving people so he can get praise. He's just greedy because he wants attention. Now, uh, we say a person's greedy because he says he wants or needs something that's more than he needs, something that's not his just due, right? If we have a problem with God receiving all glory, it's because we want a little bit for ourselves. We think we are entitled to be recognized for our efforts and our sacrifices too. But realize that you can't make it a sacrifice for God that's acceptable unless he helps you to do it except he gives you the strength to endure and he provides the very things that you will give back to him because that's what a sacrifice is. We say a person is greedy because he's happy for other people to have less so he can have more. We don't call a man, let's say a starving man, he's queued up with a bowl in his hand to receive a ladle full of soup. And we don't call him greedy for standing in line to receive a spoonful of soup for his bowl. But we would call him greedy if, after eating, he threatens a child, knocks him down, takes his soup, and eats it for himself. We'd call him a thief, and we'd call him greedy, right? Because it's not his right. But understand, all glory is God's just due. He is not demanding something that's not rightfully his. In fact, he doesn't demand it. He's going to get it one way or the other. He deserves all glory as creator. He is worthy of that. That is his just due. All he has given, all he has sacrificed, he deserves worship and adoration as our Lord. Verse 4, And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities. 
the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Jerusalem at that point was a ruin, and God promised that it would be rebuilt. The desolate places would be lived in once again. What had been ruined and abandoned would be returned to and rebuilt. The people of Israel, they were servants. A day would come when they would be served. I'm sure they looked forward to that day. Jesus is the servant of all. And the Bible says, he said, that a servant is not above his master. So if Jesus is a servant of all, then we're to serve him and one another. People will mourn in the great tribulation when Jerusalem is laid waste, when the Antichrist is persecuting the Jews. But upon Christ's return, the land will be restored. It will be rebuilt. They will rebuild the land and they will have help. Now, I would see this as a future fulfillment because in the days of Nehemiah, when the wall was being rebuilt, were they happy to have Gentile assistance? No. They were not welcome to help at that time because they're like, you have no part in this matter. The Gentiles were trying to hinder the work. They were trying to make people afraid. And so the Jews banded together and say, no, this is our inheritance. We're building something for God. You don't know God. You don't have no part with God. But this is a future time where the Gentiles will come, and because they have the same Father, and they worship the same Lord, and they have the same King, Jesus Christ, they will band together, and, and it will be a time of great blessing. In Christ's kingdom, there's this partnership that we have through Jesus. Have you experienced both sides of this blessing? To help someone and also to receive help when it's needed? Sometimes we refuse help when it's offered, and other times we don't offer to help when it's needed. But think about Simon the Cyrenian. Here's a guy who was drafted. They just saw him and said, hey, that guy, carry Jesus' cross when Jesus was struggling under the weight of it as he went towards Calvary. I'm sure Jesus in his divinity could have made that cross fly up to fly up there all by itself and uh, he didn't need help, right? As God, Jesus did not need help. But as a man, he needed help. That's how he humbled himself. It seems almost crazy to say Jesus needed help. But as a man, he did. He needed to be filled with the Spirit. And he allowed people to help him. And so if Jesus would allow a man, a foreigner, to help him carry his cross up to Calvary so he could die for Simon's sins, we can walk alongside with other people too, to that end of bearing our cross to honor God and to glorify him. We need one another too. Verse 6. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord, and they shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Under the law of Moses, the Levites were not given an inheritance of land. Everyone else was given land. That was their inheritance, but God was to be the Levites' inheritance. And if you are of the line of Aaron within the Levites, 
you were among the priests, and so you'd be trained up as a priest. This Isaiah passage, it speaks of a new arrangement where the people of Israel shall be named priests of the Lord, and they will serve him. So like the Levites who did not have their own land, the Gentiles, they would supply the needs of those who would be serving God in the temple there. It says that the Gentiles will contribute. It says, you will eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. It may seem strange that those of Israel would glory in the Gentiles. But in boasting of the glory of the Gentiles, they really boast in the Savior who redeemed them and accepted them and drew them to himself. In Jeremiah 31.9, God refers to Israel as his firstborn, so that nation of the Jews. Customarily, the firstborn would receive a double portion of the inheritance from the Father. But it won't only be believing Jews who are serving God as priests, but those who are redeemed of the church. People that Paul calls the true Jews in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. Because as Christians, we are God's adopted people. We are his children. And so we will rule and reign as well. So being a Jew in this sense, in that Romans 2 interpretation, it's not a matter of heredity, like if your mother was a Jew, you're a Jew, or if you have to practice the law and to be circumcised and to uphold the feasts and the, the requirements. If you're going to be a Jew today, that's what's required. But being born again through faith in Jesus, that is the true Jew. Those are the true children of God. Remember, Abraham was around before the law was given, and his faith was accounted as righteousness because he believed God's promise. And we are those who also obey those promises, who believe his word. If you could turn to Revelation 1, starting in verse 5, we see this connection. John was writing this as a Jew, but he was also writing this as a member of God's family through the church, through Jesus Christ, the head. In our day, there's this real push for fairness and equality. And I remember reading about uh, Joseph when Benjamin finally came, all of his brothers were there and they were having this meal. I think he gave them five times the amount of the others. So they all got to eat in, you know, in, in the house of Joseph, who was a second in command in all of Egypt. And they noticed the fact that Benjamin had five times what they had. Garments and clothes and all the, you know, all this, this wealth. But they were also privileged. I wonder if they begrudged him. We shouldn't begrudge anyone because they receive a different inheritance or, or more than us. Because it says in Revelation 1, 5 through 8, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, 
the Almighty. John's writing to people who have been washed with the blood of Jesus Christ. He's talking to people who have been born again through faith in Jesus that are made kings and priests unto God. Would it bother you if if someone who was born a Jew by ethnicity or hereditary was to receive a different inheritance or more, a double portion than you or I as Gentiles? doesn't bother me because God's given me more than I can handle as it is. David said in Psalm 84.10 of being in God's presence, he says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So he's saying, I'll take the lowest place in God's house. I'll be happy just to watch the door. I'm included, and we've been accepted. And so the fact that God's given us differing gifts, he's given us different talents or roles in the body of Christ, or he's given you X amount of resources or this amount of talents, it's all from God for God. It's really not for me. It's not for me to boast in. May our boast be in the Lord and all he's done for us. Think about those workers in the vineyard, right? Some had borne the heat of the day. They had worked all day in the vineyard, and there were some guys that worked half an hour, and they all received the same payment at the end. And when he began paying them, so the people who worked the least got paid first. And the people who are in the back of the line, who are just tired and filthy from the hard day's work, they're noticing that everyone's getting paid a denarius. And they say, ah, when it comes to us, we'll have bonus. Uh, Definitely. I mean, if he's paying that for them, he'll definitely give us a little extra. You know, we've worked hard. And at the end, they were a bit begrudging when they realized they were getting paid the same, the amount that they had agreed to at the beginning. And he says, friend, why are you jealous? Because my eye is good. Because I'm generous with my things. Haven't I given you what was right? We know that God will give us what's right and even more gracious, what's generous, something we never deserved, he gives to us. We can only labor through the heat of the day if he helps us. We can't do it on our own. Back to Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. God is not greedy for gain. He didn't demand sacrifices because he was thirsty for blood. He didn't ask for offerings because he was poor and wanted to uh, expand his empire or his kingdom. We're pretty interested in gain, even if it's a bit shady. Like if you were to invest your money and they say, I can guarantee you 25% return. You're like, hmm, you know, I've heard about Ponzi schemes before. But as long as that money is coming to my bank, I'm not going to question where it's coming from. I'm not going to question them about their bookkeeping. As long as I'm getting paid, I'm not going to ask any questions, right? That's, that's how we can operate in our flesh. Man is looking to get a little cut of the action, like a little piece of the pie. I don't want everything. I just want want a little bit extra. 
Is that so wrong? And we're like, of course not. Nothing wrong with getting a good return. God refused the burnt offerings that were stolen from other people, that they had been obtained through deceit. He not only, he didn't just see the offering and said, I receive this offering, but he looked at the hands who offered it. He looked at the heart. The hands who offered them were covered with shed blood, the blood of men. And he saw their hearts that they were greedy and they just wanted things for themselves. And so it polluted his altar. He's not interested in just getting goats and rams. He didn't need a daily sacrifice because he was poor. He said, I hate the robbery. I refuse it. The law was a shadow of things to come. The daily sacrifices of animals was pointing to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who once for all his blood would cleanse of sin. And he would redeem in righteousness and give that righteousness to those who believe in him. And he would give us an everlasting covenant, an agreement, as the passage says. We can read this in Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. When we're born again, God works in you what is pleasing his sight. He makes you complete in every work that you do for him. We can do as Christians the right thing with the right heart because he's the one who's transformed us. He's given us a new heart. In Ephesians 3.19, it says, Through trusting and loving Jesus, we're filled with the fullness of God. We can have the Holy Spirit within us. And our passage says, All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. So we sing the Father Abraham song and, you know, swinging one arm and one leg. and like He's our Father in that He is the Father of faith. He's the one who led the way in obeying God, believing his promises. And blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 55, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. God hasn't asked everyone to leave their homes and to go into a foreign country where he'll show you. But he has called all of us to love one another. And it doesn't take any more faith to leave one's country than it does to love somebody like Jesus does, to love like that. We kind of put things like, oh, martyrdom, a lot of faith, tons of faith in God. Uh, you know, moving and being a missionary, oh, that's really difficult. Or, or uh, serving in children's ministry or working with youth, wow, you know, special faith there. But to love one another, that is the supreme thing. That is the measuring rod that we would be measuring up to that level of Christ where he humbled himself to love people who betrayed him, to love people who hurt him, to keep loving them. It's easy for us to give grace to people who don't know God. We know that they're they're blind to the truth. But will we give grace to Christians, even when we know they know better 
than the way that they have treated us. That's a bit harder, isn't it? Because we hold them to a standard. We say, hey, you should know better. Rightly so, but let us give grace. Let us continue to love. Instead of isolating ourselves, let's seek to be restored to them so that we can have a restored relationship. Think about Peter and John. When they were interrogated by the religious rulers, they weren't in awe of their wisdom or their, um, you know, power of speech. It wasn't because of their Jewish ethnicity or the way they were brought up. They said, these men have been with Jesus. It says they perceived their boldness. And when they were beaten, they were found to be untouchable because they loved God and trusted God more than they looked to their own health or their own future. And they said, Jesus is it. We're following him. You know, we don't even have to answer you in this matter. You know, you can decide among yourselves whether it's right to obey God or to listen to you, but we're going to obey God no matter what you do to us. Those who have fellowship with God are most blessed. Verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. We can rejoice in a lot of things rather than God. We can walk into a cold, a cool room and go, ooh, there could be some rejoicing going on because we are much more comfortable than being outside. But the prophet takes the opportunity to rejoice in God, to be joyful in him. Do you take the time to intentionally do this? To rejoice in God, what he has done, who he is, all that he's given you. Where we remember his justice, we celebrate his generosity, we praise him for his faithfulness. God doesn't come to us demanding worship. He doesn't. He is worthy of worship. He doesn't force us like he is poor or needy or greedy to give him something. He actually comes to us offering himself. Jesus came as a sacrifice to give with no strings attached because he loves us and he's put his grace upon us. It's always costly to forgive and he was willing to pay that price all on his own so we could be saved. We should be thankful for the access we have to God. The gifts he's given us, the future, God's prepared for us and really these things are all insignificant if we don't praise God and give him glory for who he is, his presence, that we can just be with him forever. There's so many great pictures in Scripture of God um, giving favor to undeserving people. When we studied through the Song of Solomon, we read of the this woman who was a bit self-conscious of her, her, her tan skin from working in the field. And there was this prince, though, who just loved her and he pursued her and they're taking walks together and he's he's skipping across mountains to wake her up in the morning. They're having these these romantic dinners and, and they end up getting married, this lavish wedding. So this, this poor girl who's working in vineyards, she's swept off her feet by this king, a prince who's going to be a king. 
and he just lavishes his love upon her. It's, it's, she's getting into bed and he's the one knocking on the door and, and trying to open the door so he can be with her. In Ezekiel 16, there's a parable that God tells of the people of Jerusalem. And he said, when I came and found you, it was like you were a baby who had been abandoned. You hadn't been washed. Your umbilical cord was still connected and you were dying in your own blood. And I could have just walked away, but I had compassion on you. I said, live. And so I swaddled you and I cleaned you and I brought you into my own house and I put beautiful ornaments on you. And, and you grew up to be a beautiful young woman, and I married you so that we could be together forever. It's like she didn't deserve that, but because he loved her, he set his affection upon her. In Hosea, God commanded the prophet. He says, I want you to go marry an adulterous woman, a harlot. Marry her because that's what I've done with my people. I join myself to people who were unfaithful to me, and they sought many lovers. And so after they had been married, they had three kids, and then she ended up leaving. And God told Hosea, go find her, pay the price, not for a night, for the rest of her life, so that you could bring her back home and you could be together and say, this is what I'm going to do to you. And I'm going to speak nice things to you. I'm going to allure you. I'm going to uh, show how much I love you. I'm not going to make you love me. But this, I'm willing to do everything for you. The son in the parable of the prodigal, told by Jesus, he wasted the inheritance he had been given from his father. He wasted it, uh, and he found himself feeding pigs. And it says he came to himself, and he realized that, you know, servants in my father's house have it better than I have right now. And so purely out of selfishness, he decides to go back home and to to uh, just beg his dad, say, hey, can I just be a servant for you? I don't deserve to be your son, but life's horrible where I'm at. Will you take me back just as a servant? And it says, well, he was afar off, and he's probably just rehearsing this in his mind, what he's going to say. His dad sees him and runs to him, puts a clean robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, puts shoes on his feet and says, hey, everybody, tonight we are partying because my son, he's he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And they celebrated together. These are all pictures of God's grace. His kindness to us. We are all undeserving. We don't deserve it. We're, we're the tan girl in the fields who hasn't gone to school and and who really has no prospects. We're that baby that was by the side of the road that had just been thrown there. We're like that harlot who was unfaithful to her husband. We're like that prodigal son who said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. I want it now. That's us. That's who we are in the story. But God, in his great love and his faithfulness, he speaks kindly to us. He, he speaks alluringly. He draws us to himself and he says, come to me. If you're thirsty, I've got living water. I can restore your soul. The prophet rejoiced in God. He said, he has clothed me. Not he will clothe me. He says, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself 
with her jewels. As partakers of that covenant, we have been uh, clothed with salvation. We've been spiritually provided this robe of righteousness. It's like in place of those tattered rags stained with sin, God says, you believe in me? You are now welcome at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's a garment that will give you entrance. Righteousness. My righteousness is now on you. We've all been given uh, gifts by the Holy Spirit. It talks about these ornaments or jewels. I thought back on my wedding day, and that's a day you want to look good, right? I hired a tux and Laura wore a white dress. You want to be wearing clothes that fit well, that are clean, that are, you know, fitting properly. So I hired my tux. Laura bought her wedding dress. But see who provides the garments and ornaments and jewels in this passage. God. People weren't like digging through their hope chests trying to find something that looked good that God would enjoy. God gave them all the wealth that they're adorned with, all the ornaments that they're decked with. None of us could supply righteousness. None of us could do anything that would fit the court of a king. It's a common tradition, I don't know about in Australia, but in the States to wear something borrowed. So a bride will wear something borrowed. But we've been adorned with the crown jewels of heaven as gifts. It's not just something borrowed where you would, you know, sign a paper and, okay, it's insured. Make sure you return these after the ball. You know, be back here by midnight. None of that. He gives us those things, and these are for you forever. You get to have them. You get to enjoy them. And it's not a reflection of your wealth, but my generosity and my goodness. We're like those, we're like a poor beggar that God has taken off the street. He's cleaned our clothes. He has given us new clothes. He hasn't just let us into his house, but he's adopted us as his children. And all the riches of the kingdom of God are ours. And that doesn't mean that we're super rich. It means that our father is rich. And he gets the glory for it because I didn't earn it. It's a gift from him. When we sit down to that table and there's this feast spread out before us, it's not because we worked hard for this. And that's why we're satisfied. No, be satisfied in a God who's given you everything. The food on your table, your family, your future, righteousness, acceptance into the kingdom of God. And he concludes there, for as the earth brings forth its bud and the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Here we see a really good application for us today. We know that the type of seeds we plant will dictate the flowers that grow from them, right? The thing that you sow, that's what will spring up. Now, you can't make it spring up faster than you want. It will grow in its time. In a garden, you sow what you will reap. You will reap what you will sow. If we're living for the world, so this is where we make it personal, if we're living for the world, we will be worldly. But if we're living for Jesus, we will live righteously. That's the fruit that will come from our lives. If you invest your life for the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus Christ, you will have treasures in heaven. But ultimately, God will receive glory from your life no matter how you look at it. He'll be glorified through the administration of divine justice. 
when he judges us according to our, according to the law and our works. He'll be glorified through the gracious gift of salvation given us through the gospel in Jesus Christ. He'll be glorified by his power to cast wicked people and Satan himself into hell forever. And he'll also be glorified when he opens the gates of heaven to anybody who will come. He says, you're invited, you're accepted. God's getting the glory regardless. So what kind of glory will he get from you, from your life? It's not like I can set out to do something for God's glory. But let's glorify him. Let's remember him. Let's thank him. Let's live in light of what he's done for us. Recognizing, though, I mean, that baby that's by the side of the road, dying in its own blood, doesn't have a lot of understanding about who saved her or what he sacrificed to let her live. And that can be us, too, where hey, we've kind of just known God for a while and and we almost take it for granted. We think, hey, I am royalty because this is how I was born. But no, you're royal because of being born again through Jesus and that gift of salvation. So take heart, believers. You plant seeds and water them, but who makes them grow? God. You can't make that grow faster. The one who designed seeds, he created them to bring forth after its own kind. You may struggle to live righteously in a dark world, but God is the one who grants righteousness and he causes it to grow so that your life will more and more reflect his righteousness when you sow to the Spirit. He's declared you righteous and he'll give you through his Spirit the ability to live righteously. Instead of trying to be righteous, we need to receive that righteousness and then choose to walk in it through repentance, through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't make your right, yourself righteous and you can't make other people righteous either. We can really burden ourselves with trying to put righteousness on other people, to have them live up to a standard so we can be more comfortable with them, but realize God's the one who is righteous and he causes that planting of righteousness to grow in its time. And we can trust him. It says that God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations from you and from me. That we could declare his praise. I want to conclude as we began. Let's read it one more time. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Let's praise God for his goodness and his wonderful works unto the children of men that he's made us children of God together according to his grace and mercy. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for these promises. Thank you for all that Jesus has accomplished, that he is the anointed one and you have anointed us, that you have taken away uh, the sinful sorrow from our lives. You've taken away the mourning and replaced it. Lord, we still mourn 
We still delight in things that uh, aren't necessarily even of you. But we ask that as the planting of the Lord, you would cause us to grow and you would prune us, Lord. You would make us more fruitful so that we would better reflect your glory to this world. Thank you, Lord, that you will receive glory and you are worthy. You are not greedy. You are not like us. Lord, we confess that we're sinners and we are undeserving of your favor, yet you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have picked us up from the pit. You have washed us. You have cleansed us and you have joined yourself with us. Lord, we cling to you today, knowing that it's you who deserves the praise. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you have saved us. You have washed and we praise you, Lord. May we live lives that are clean and honorable unto you and a sacrifice worthy of the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name.